Good to see you. I'm Joel, and uh, we have teaching from the Bible here, and uh, we are uh, looking at the, the, a dark stage in, in the life of, of King David, which is what the, the book of Samuel is, is mostly about, the life of King David. And we, we're seeing him at a, a, sad, a sad and lonely time, uh, having been turned on by his son, Absalom, and because of that, actually turned on by the whole of Israel, the whole nation, because the people sort of choose Absalom over against David. We've, we've looked at how his, his story took this dark turn, and it's partly because of his, it's, it's substantially because of his own moral failings that it happens. It's because of a, a terrible mistake, a terrible sin that he commits, few chapters earlier, a few years earlier, which has ongoing implications on his family and on his kingdom. And so we've looked at how uh, this sort of sad story kind of carries its way through in his life, has its ongoing impact. Uh, But last week we looked at the kind of turning point, which is where he receives the news of his son Absalom's defeat and in fact, his death. It was so very uh, gruesome and uh, emotionally uh, poignant part of the Bible as well because it, it shows David's uh, massive grief that he goes through as he discovers his son's death. But what it means is that we can now start looking at the, the, the next stage in the story. David is ascendant. He's He's coming back after all the kingdom has been through, after all the rebellion, all the mess. The dust is beginning to settle. Everything is restoring. And oh, it's a a time at last for life to get back to normal, for the normal circumstances to be recovered. And so there's something about this chapter, chapter 19, that we're going to look at in a moment, uh, which is kind of gratifying. It's kind of, it's nice to see some resolve. It's like, oh, this dark, long season of exile comes to an end. It's good to be reminded of that occasionally, isn't it, as we look in our Bible, to be reminded that seasons of uncertainty, seasons of adversity and Disappointment, frustration, delay, such seasons are not meant to last. They don't last forever. It can feel very much as though they do. I'm sure you know what I mean. Some of you are going through such seasons right now where it feels like nothing is going right. And it may be because of some decisions that you made. It may be things that you brought on yourself and you feel, oh, I've got myself in a mess and I can't get out of it and I will never get out of it. And it may be that it's not something you've particularly brought upon yourself. It's, it, seems, it seems almost as though you're more the innocent party, but it's just life has hit you and it's been a long season and you're wor- wondering, will this never end? I tell you, if you're a child of God, you can live with a a genuine security, a genuine confidence that God is in control of your days, of your years, 
of your seasons. And though he'll bring you through valleys and bring you through the wilderness, he won't leave you there. He brings you through it for purposes that sometimes we never know. He always knows. He doesn't always explain them to us, but he doesn't leave, them, uh, leave us in them indefinitely. He brings us out of it. He brings his people out of seasons as well. That can be very dark and discouraging. He brings his people to times where he, he, he sort of vindicates those who've trusted him and raises them up. Churches and the church in general can go through very long periods in history where they're kind of in the dark, kind of particularly marginalized, particularly voiceless, particularly fruitless, it would seem, and ignored and unsuccessful. But we also read in Scripture about times when it's as though the king shows up again. If you've read the Narnia stories, you might remember the phrase, Aslan is on the move. And, and that's a pertinent phrase. That's, that's a deliberately crafted phrase from those stories where it's a, a picture of, of God's rescuer, God's saviour, the king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus showing up again. And there are times in church life where it's like God just shows up again and does something fresh and new. And it changes things. It doesn't change everything. There's a day coming when he will change everything. And everything will be set, set straight forever. But in the meantime, we have kind of tasters. We have these seasons where it's like his kingdom comes in a powerful way. The kingdom of Jesus breaks out. And it's not necessarily in that lasting sense in which he's done away with wickedness and evil forever and ever. But nevertheless, it can be very exciting and exhilarating. And Jesus instructed us to pray for that very thing when he told his disciples, pray like this, your kingdom come. That we're told to ask God for more of his kingdom. His son being seen to rule, being seen as powerful, being acknowledged even by his enemies even by secular cities like Brighton. It's right for us to pray and hope for times when even our secular city will have to acknowledge that something great is going on in the church, that something great is happening and it's to do with Jesus. It's right for us to hope and long for that, plead for it, pray for it, because God instructed us to, and to believe that it will happen again and again. We sometimes call such seasons revival. Jesus would call it his kingdom, breaking in of his power, his kingdom coming. When the kingdom of God comes into someone's life, when the, 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 the king is coming back to his throne, he's ascending again, the time of exile is over, Absalom has been dealt with, the king is coming back. It's, it's exhilarating, it's kind of frightening, perhaps. It can be a, almost a terrifying thing for those who find themselves at least at first on the wrong side of the king, thinking, what? He's, he's real. For many of us, becoming a Christian felt like that at first, didn't it? It was almost a little bit uncomfortable, or maybe it was very uncomfortable. Perhaps I'm pulling my punches. Maybe it was terrifying to discover against all of your expectations and assumptions that you cherished for decades, perhaps, that in fact Jesus is real. That <laughs> He actually did rise from the dead. And that can be disconcerting can make you nervous, can make you tremble. 
And we have a, a chapter of the Bible here where we're, we're seeing what happens when the king is re-acknowledged. And a whole community begins to see, oh, we were so wrong. We were wrong. We were wrong in our choice of another king. We were wrong in ignoring God's king. We were wrong in ignoring, in ignoring the Messiah. And we need, we need to welcome him back. We need, to, we need to find a way to be on good terms with him again. It's very humbling for them. Maybe it's been humbling for you. Maybe it's humbling for you right now. Maybe the reason you're in church today is because you're having to face the reality of God in a way you never expected to. Perhaps you've come to church today against all of your expectations. You're thinking, what am I doing in church I never thought I'd be interested in church, but to my astonishment, I'm noticing that Jesus is real, that God is real. I'm having to deal with feelings of fear and guilt and, and, and a trepidation in me that I never thought I'd have to face. And, and so I'm in church, but I, 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 don't know if, I don't know what to expect. Here, let me speak to you especially. One of the nice things about this chapter is that we get to see what it's like when King Jesus shows up. And it's, in this story, it's King David showing up. But he's, a, he's a, a foreshadowing in this story of Jesus. In many ways, we look at David and we see Jesus, in many ways. And in this chapter, there are several ways that we can see what it's like when the King, the Lord Jesus, begins to show up. Now, because it's such a long chapter, I'm not going to do what I normally do and read it all through and then uh, pray and talk through it. I'm just going to read it in bits and, and comment as we go through and draw out, draw out those things we see in Jesus. What you'll notice especially today as we, as we go through this is that the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of grace, surprising grace, surprising forgiveness. It goes against our intuition sometimes. It goes against what we might expect when we see how willing he is in showing up, how willing he is to show grace to us. And I want us to learn from that. It means that the subject of this sermon is forgiveness again. I've found it interesting as we've gone through to Samuel in recent weeks, how most weeks there's a forgiveness theme. There's a lot of forgiveness talk in this book of the Bible. And I've been tempted to think, well, do the, do the church need to hear another message on forgiveness? Let's just skip on. But I think that's wrong. I think, yes, we do need to hear another message on forgiveness. I do. So I think probably you do as well. We need to keep learning how God deals with us and how we're to deal with one another. So let's go into this straight away. I'm going to read to you from verse 9 to just the first couple of verses first. All the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Now, what I want to just draw out from these two verses is, is very simply the, the poison of shame, the poison of shame. You see, you've got, you've got here a, a whole nation, a whole community of people who are together in the awkward acknowledgement that they got it wrong. As a nation, they turned towards Absalom together. 
and they feel the shame of that. They feel the failure of it. Even the, the, uh, the, this kind of strong language, this strong admission, Absalom, whom we anointed over us. That's strong language. We, we anointed him. We Christed him, if you like. We said he's the one. He's the king. He's the Messiah, if you like. He's the one that we want to have instead of the one that God gave us. And they're, they're aware of their failure as a nation. Now, I think that instinctively, the way we operate often is to imagine that there's some power in shame to get us out of the gutter. That we, we, we realize our mistakes, perhaps, our failings, our shortcomings, and we concentrate on them. And we imagine that by trying to deal with them and, and find out who's to blame and accuse and, 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 and really by trying to work the shame, we will solve the problem. Let's, let's, let's just dwell on our shame and on our failing. That is generally a very counterproductive measure. It's, it's often what we think will work. We instinctively try it because we feel the power of shame. It's kind of, it's a little bit overwhelming. So we concentrate on it. But it actually is unproductive. It doesn't achieve anything. What it tends to achieve instead is an atmosphere of poisonous accusation, mutual accusation. We feel ashamed. We hate feeling ashamed. And so we are quick to accuse, quick to blame others. And we see this from the very first pages of the Bible when Shame was first introduced into the world. When the first man, the first woman are ashamed, the Bible says they were ashamed of what they'd done when they disobeyed God. But when, when God shows up, just like David's showing up here in this story, do you remember what Adam and Eve immediately do? They immediately blame each other. Adam says it was, it was a woman that did it. The woman looks around and blames the serpent. It was the serpent. There's, there's a quick kind of self-defense a self-righteousness, self-justification. It's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm right. I wouldn't have done that. I, I would never do that. It was them. In fact, when I read this, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the atmosphere that probably sort of prevailed in places like France just after the war. You may have seen some of the uh, pretty unpleasant photographs that, that, you, can, that you can find of of young women being publicly shamed in the town squares in, in French cities because they collaborated romantically with, with young Nazi soldiers during the German occupation of France. Because they, they gave themselves to the occupiers and, and after the war it was like, how dare you? And they would take them to public places and shave all their hair off as a, as a way of showing shame, covering them with shame. But you understand that a culture that does that is doing it partly out of a sense of its own shame. We, we judge and attack partly because we feel we blew it too. But we'd rather deal with it by scapegoating someone. It's your fault. 
So these poor young girls are mocked and, and horribly mocked. And because of a sort of self-righteousness, I would never have collaborated. There's a lot of that that went on, for example, after the war. It often goes on in countries. The Brits, because we didn't get occupied, we tend to think, well, we would never have, we would never put up with Mr. Hitler. We tend to assume that yeah, we, we would be perfectly righteous. We wouldn't put up with all that. We wouldn't collaborate. There's a film that's just come out about what happened in the war in Guernsey. It suggests possibly otherwise. That's a... British place, Brits lived there, and a lot of Brits collaborated. Let's be a bit careful before we're quick to assume, oh, I would never, I would never have gone with Absalom. But the whole nation knows deep down, no, we did as a nation. We failed as a nation, and we hate the feeling of failure. It's, it's horrible. It's like stuff you can't get off. It's just, ugh. It's horrible to carry it around. And it's not productive. It doesn't achieve anything. We try and make it achieve stuff, and so we accuse and we attack, and there's this kind of, why don't you do something about it? Why haven't you brought the king back? In the end, it's left to David to take the initiative. And that's what we see in verses 11 to 13. King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? Listen to this in verse 12. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasar, are you not bone, my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. What's David doing here? David is, is surprising everybody by going to the people who should be most ashamed, his own tribe, Judah, from whom some of the traitors arose, his own family, Absalom, rose up from. And this, this young man, Amasar, was the commander of Absalom's army. David is going to them first and saying, guys, you're my brothers. You're my very own. We are flesh and bone. We are joined together. I find it striking that David even talks in terms of identity. He wants to honor people. He wants to honor them in spite of what they obviously deserve and don't deserve. He chooses not just to let them off in some kind of high-handed way, which would be an option, wouldn't it? Well, I'll give you another chance, guys, but I'm not happy. I'm not impressed. And you wouldn't be. I mean, who, I am not impressed. But we'll give, it a, we'll give you a year. Maybe six months. We'll just we'll give you another try, shall we? And that's a that's a that's an option. Not necessarily a wrong option. It might be quite wise to do that in some circumstances. But David, in this instance, chooses instead to overwhelm them with honour. You're my flesh and blood. You're my flesh and bone. You're mine. He even uses the language of Genesis two: that husband and wife, we're joined, flesh and bone. We're we're one. And this this. This surely speaks about our Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, in the moment of, of returning from his despicable abandonment by his disciples, his betrayal and denial from those who claim to follow him, do you remember what he says to Mary at the tomb when she finds him on Easter Sunday? You know, in John's Gospel, all through John's Gospel, Jesus talks about his relationship to his father. 
my father, my father. He keeps, it just comes that phrase, my father, my father, my father, my father, all the way through John's gospel. There's only, it's only after the resurrection when Jesus says this to one of his disciples in John's gospel, my father and your father. Now, in the other Gospels, to be sure, he talks that way often. Your Father in heaven. Your fa- Say, our Father in heaven. He talks to his disciples like that. But John's trying to make a point. John's trying to say, friends, he's able to invite us in to this relationship to the Father because of what he went through on the cross. Because of what he suffered, he's now able to say, my Father and your Father. And what he invites us into, therefore, is this place, not just of being let off the hook, given another chance, but this place of eternal dignity. You are my flesh and bone. You're my brothers. You're my sisters. We belong together. You are no more unwelcome than I am. This is astonishing. This, this is the kind of grace that, that, that David's giving clues about in this, this behavior of his. When you become a Christian, you're joined to Christ, as a husband and a father are. And what's his becomes yours. Um, a, husband and a, a husband and a wife are. Sorry, husband and wife. Yeah, sorry. What, what, what's his becomes yours, and what's yours becomes his. I've used this illustration before. When I got married... We use those vows as, as, as people will. All that I have, I give to you. And my wife said to me, all that I have, I give to you. And what I brought to my marriage was a lot of student debt. And what she brought to our marriage was some very wise investments. <laughs> so, so when she said, all I have, I give to you, I was like, amen. That's good. It's good to hear. When I said, all I have, I give to you, she was like, Okay. Okay, that's how it works with Christ. You're joined to someone who says, okay, I will cover all your debts. You're joined to me now. You're joined to me. Let's forget all about the debts. Let's forget all about the past. Let's forget about it. You're joined to me now. You've got a new name. It's all new from this point. What a privilege to be joined with God's chosen king. Let's just move on to verse 14 and 15. He swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over to Jordan. Let me make a quick point about this. I want you to see here the wisdom. We've looked at the the poison of shame. We've just looked at the dignity of forgiveness. But let me show you the wisdom of forgiveness right here. The wisdom of forgiveness. What's David doing? Well, he's doing something very godly. He's behaving like his, his, his God. He's also doing something very wise. Forgiveness is smart. It's not just right. It's wise. It's, it's good for society. It's good for families. It's good for marriages. It's good for workplaces. It's good for bosses. I say that because I think, again, very often the, the intuition, the instinct we have is to hold back forgiveness, to hold back on showing grace and mercy to people. And perhaps we do that thinking, if I, if I, if I do this, I will survive. I will achieve more by being unforgiving. You may find, actually, often by forgiving people, by showing surprising mercy to people, you achieve a great deal. 
you change a whole workplace in a, in a moment, in a stroke. You change a whole family situation by simply forgiving and loving. Now, I say simply, we're going to talk about how it's not simple, but nevertheless, understand the power of showing mercy and grace by choosing not to be the quarreler, choosing not to be petulant, choosing not to be vindictive, by, by deliberately choosing an, a course of non-vindictiveness, you could be saving your workplace. Some of you, that's a very practical step this week. Because you're in situations where the, 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 the temptation and the, the opportunity is there to be vindictive. And it might even seem like the wise option. And you may find it that people around you are saying, no, no, don't forgive that. That's not, not a good move. But I want to suggest to you there may be great wisdom in showing forgiveness at this point, showing genuine mercy. I can think of a, a few verses from Proverbs that, that come to mind. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And over the page in chapter 12, verse 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. And then you get to uh, chapter 20 and verse 3 of Proverbs, and it says, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. What's David doing? He's winning the nation. He's winning the whole nation. The nation is like, oh. he's, he's, he's calling us, he's flesh and bone, he's, he's honoring us. He's, well, he's chosen Amasar, who was the commander of Absalom's army, as his new military chief. No one expected that. That's a phenomenal move. Why would you do that? Why would you take your enemies and make them your friends and make them your trusted servants? How can anyone do that? Well, that's what the Lord Jesus has been doing for thousands of years. And it's how those who belong to Jesus are now equipped to do the same. If we learn to exercise this act of forgiveness, we may find that we turn whole communities. Just like David turns the heart of the nation. He's winning the nation over. Some of the people that you've got difficulty with, it may be that by demonstrating forgiveness to them, you may win them in ways that you could never have expected. Now, you may not, to be sure. I'm not making a false promise here. You may not win people. You may, it may not work in that clinical, pragmatic sense. But bear in mind that very often forgiveness brings tremendous dividends. There's real wisdom in it. And the Bible in Proverbs suggests that. So let's move on to the next verses, 16 to 23. Uh, that's just a longer chunk. Now remember Shimei. Some of you remember, you've been around for a few weeks. Shimei was, was a, a, someone from a different tribe who basically came out to accuse. He was a Benjaminite. He was from Saul's family. He accused David publicly. He was extremely hostile. So he basically trolled him for, for a long time. And publicly, David was receiving abuse from this despicable person, frankly. And, and you may remember, one of his soldiers is standing by, ready to kill Shimei for him. David resists the soldier, says, no, 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 don't do that. Do not do that. But let's just read on to see how uh, this works out for Shimei, because now Shimei is probably quaking. Okay, everybody knows I was the guy, I was the troll, I'm the one now up in front of the newspapers, in front of the, the flick, flicking cameras, and all, all the world's press are watching to see how am I going to handle this situation now that David's actually come through and won. Shimei, the son of Jerah, 
the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gerar, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, shall not Shimei be put to death for this? It's interesting, it's Abishai once again. He's very keen on killing Shimei. He's, he's had that attitude throughout the book. You know, anytime Shimei gets mentioned, so does Abishai, and usually it's him saying, can I kill him, please? Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now that's another powerful example of counterintuitive behavior. Not what you'd expect. He surprises everyone by showing forgiveness. But I want to talk about here the resolve of forgiveness. The resolve of forgiveness, even that word oath at the end, suggests that there's something that David, David is having to fight for Shimei's life. See, forgiveness is actually a robust thing, right? Forgiveness is no dainty thing. It's no superficial thing. If you've ever had to forgive somebody, you know that. You know that you have to overcome the voices, right? There are lots of voices. When you've got to forgive someone, there will be an Abishai within you saying, this person does not deserve forgiveness. And that voice will be correct. If they deserve forgiveness, it wouldn't be forgiveness. That's what forgiveness is. It's undeserved. And the voice within, the Abishai within, will tell you, and sometimes tell you for days, maybe weeks, before the voice is gone. It will take a while sometimes to squash the voice of Abishai. And David squashes it. He's resolute. He's resolved. No, this is not going to happen. You will not touch him. You will not touch him. You will not touch him. That's difficult, isn't it? That's very difficult. I'd love to give you examples. There's not time, but I can think of so many brilliant stories I've I've come across where people have had to fight the inner urges to not forgive. And really, you've got to seek God sometimes. Sometimes you've got to pray until you can be free. Sometimes it takes a battle. Sometimes people come to me and say, I've tried to forgive. I've tried to forgive. And I, I feel so sorry for people in that situation. I, honestly, that's pain. When you know you've tried something, sometimes maybe even for years, and it's still hard. 
what do you do? It's difficult. It's difficult. But my friend, the only thing I can say to people at times like that, well, there are many things, thankfully, we can say, but the thing I can't say is then give up. Then don't forgive. That's not an option for us. That is not an option. Our Jesus commands it. Remember, the disciples came to him saying, well, how often should we forgive people then? Seven times? As many as seven times? Jesus said, no. No, 70 times seven. 70 times seven. What's he saying? He's saying, you just keep doing it. That's the kind of kingdom I'm building. You just keep doing it. You just keep forgiving. How on earth do you do that? If you've really been wronged, if you've really been hurt, to keep on at it. What a battle that is. What a battle it can be. And we need the resolve that David had here. No, I'm not hearing that voice, Abishai. In fact, what have I to do with you, sons of Zariah? I will not have that. That is not the voice I wish to hear. You come from something different than me. That's not me speaking. That's someone else. Do you do that with the voices? That's not me. That's not me. That's not what I'm made to be. That's someone else. That's the sons of Zariah. They don't belong. I'm, not, I'm a son of God. I'm a child of the king. I'm going to behave like that. I'm going to walk true with him. It's a battle, yeah? And here's the thing. Sometimes they're not just inner voices. This is tough. Sometimes they're, they're actual friends. Abishai is a friend. He's a soldier. He's come alongside. He's fought for David. He saved David's life. What are you going to do when that happens? When someone comes to you and says, why are you forgiving him? Why are you forgiving her? And they do it because they love you. That's why they say it. It's because they, they're loyal to you. And their loyalty makes them unhelpful at that point. So sometimes you don't just have to quell inner voices, you have to quell other voices. It's an extra battle, but you've got to do it, my friend. You've got to choose who you're going to listen to. Choose how you listen. Choose who you're hearing. What kind of friends do you listen to at times when you've got to forgive someone? I think of times when people were saying to me on one or two occasions, that person has behaved terribly to you. And frankly, it wasn't what I needed to hear because I was working by God's grace to forget it. I was, I was seeking God for the grace to just forget it, forget it. But I had friends who were saying, that person did such terrible... Friends, don't be an Abishai yourself with your friends. Let's, let's work at this. Some of our conversations are very Abishai. We're very good at trawling, raking over the things we didn't like about what someone did. Let's just discuss why we disapprove of what she said or what he did. Let's just talk it out. Now, there is a place for objective discussion, but I have to be honest, I'm kidding myself way too often. A lot of my objective discussion is me just providing opportunity to be unforgiving. Because it just, it just reminds, let's just remind ourselves of what they did. Let's just bring it up again, what this person did. That's what Abishai is doing here. David has to prevent it. Sometimes you need friends around you who can say, you need to forgive that person. You ever had that? They're good friends. They're really annoying. But they're good friends. They're good friends to you. 
remember that once when I was on the phone with someone who I've been through a, a, a few difficulties with a, another friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, and felt he just was being consistently rude and cutting and unfair and hostile and in a certain situation. And I said to the other friend, I just kept bringing it up, bringing it up. And I'm used, like you are, to having the third friend say, yeah, I know, I know. That's what I'm used to. I wasn't used to what he said. He said, well, you just need to forgive him. And I was set free. I was set free because one of my dear friends just said, he just didn't do what Abishai. He did what David needed, what I needed, what you'll need sometimes. I guess we've got to be careful. There's echo chambers that we can create. And we need to sometimes be forceful and be resolute. You know, forgiveness is, is, is a robust thing. We, we, do, we do think that we know about forgiveness because we live in a tolerant society, so-called. We like to imagine that we're good at forgiveness because we tolerate things. I tell you, tolerating and forgiving are very different. Very, very different. Just putting up with stuff because, well, who am I to judge? I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be forgiving. No, you're not being forgiving. Just by to be honest, often self-righteously parading our non-judgmentalism. We're not forgiving people. That's not forgiveness. That's cheap. Forgiveness is not cheap. There's nothing cheap about it, is there? Jesus, when they brought to him that woman caught in adultery, and they said, we, we are supposed to stone her to death. You know the story, some of you. John's Gospel. They're waiting for his, his answer. They're fascinated. What's he going to say about this? Jesus famously says, whichever one of you has not sinned in this, in this area, in this situation, you can cast the first stone. And they're, all, they're all guilty. They're all effectively caught up in this whole episode. They know they're all guilty. They've all got the shame. They all walk away. Jesus, the only one who has no shame, the only innocent guy in the scene, he says to her, I do not condemn you. He forgives her. Now that is a very, very popular 21st century Bible story. People in the liberal West love that story because it's so brilliant. It's very President Bartlett. It's very kind of... It's very kind of liberal. It's very, we love that guy, that guy that stands up and, and says the liberal thing, the kind of, oh, let her go. Come on. It's post-60s. Come on. That's not anything to do with it. Jesus isn't just being tolerant and liberal. Jesus is taking bullets in every second of that scene. There's nothing cool about what Jesus is doing. They hated him for it. It took incredible resolve to stand and say, I do not condemn you. What a courageous thing to do. It takes no courage in 21st century Britain to say, oh, we shouldn't judge people. Anyone can say that. In first century Judea, you did not say that. You did not say that, but Jesus did. Why? Because he was the one that was going to take the rocks. Because he was the one that was going to take the punishment. So he knows what forgiveness costs. He knows that it hurts. He knows what you know, right? When you've got to forgive someone, it's painful. It's really hard. Jesus knows all about it. 
and he's resolved to do it. But my friend, if that's true, then it's pretty challenging. But wow, is it encouraging as well. Because it means that the person who has said to you, if you are a Christian, and if you're not, I urge you to become one today. The person who has said to you, I forgive you. (laughs) He has sworn an oath. He's not changing his mind. He did it. He did it already. When he said, I forgive you, he wasn't in a good mood. He wasn't feeling happy. You didn't catch him on the right day. It all happened on the very much the wrong day. It all happened 2,000 years ago in a lonely garden when he, he said, God, is there any other way that they can be forgiven? Is there any other way? And there was no answer. And he knew he had to drink the bitter cup. He had to go through crucifixion. He had to suffer and die. And he's made an oath. If he says to you, you're forgiven, my friend, you are forgiven. (laughs) There's no argument. There's no discussion. He's fierce about this. There's no one who can come near with any accusation. Plenty will try. (laughs) There's someone who lives to make accusations every day. That's his business. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers. He accuses God's people day and night. Constantly, constantly accusing you, constantly attacking, covering you with shame. You failed. You're not good enough. You blew it. You're a mess. You come from a mess. Your nation is a mess. You blew it as a whole nation. Your family's a mess. Everything about you is a mess. See, that voice that you feel sometimes, that's not just your head. There's a person, a spiritual, evil, malignant being who daily lives to point the finger at you and accuse you. What are you going to do about him? Just justify yourself? Accuse other people? It was her fault. Was it, I didn't do anything. I would never do anything like that. No, forget it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You need someone else to fight for you. You need someone to step in and say, okay, enough. You need, you need Aslan. <laughs> you need the lion to come. Roar. And say, this one is forgiven. This one, I paid the price. This one is free. That's, that's, that's your only plea, my friend. That's your only hope. But to know that, to walk in the good, to receive his grace and his forgiveness, to receive his crown, to have him say, I, I'm not accusing you. You're my flesh and bone. You're joined to me. Is to be equipped to forgive others. That's how we do it, Right? We can't do it any other way. We need help. So we say, God, teach me how much I've been forgiven. Teach me to live in the good of it. Teach me to show the same grace and mercy to other people. Let's pray together. We haven't got anywhere near finishing this chapter, but I believe the Holy Spirit was at work just now trying to slow me down, so I'm I'm, I'm not going to apologize for that. Father, we just ask you for your help now. We feel like this this book has kept us, it's kind of eyeballed us on this subject for a few weeks. And uh, we need help. We, We thank you for your word, but we now ask you for the spirit to come and do this inward work. 
Lord, we, 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 we realize we, we can hear a sermon on forgiveness and then think, why am I hearing it again the next week? Why am I hearing it a week later? Well, may, maybe there's a reason. You say, God, please teach us to be like you. Help us to, be, help us to build a church that is like you. Help us to build marriages, families, friendships that are like this. Lord, I confess I'm not like this. I know that people will have to sometimes choose the right day with me. I say, God, please help me. Help us each one. God, give us genuinely tender hearts. Help us to do the surprising thing because we found such grace from God.